0: Hi, friends. It's Julie. I am so excited for you to hear this brand new episode of the podcast today. But just a very quick thing first. We want to talk to listeners who are feeling discouraged about the political system in America. This is for an upcoming episode about how to stay engaged when you don't feel like either major party represents your views. I'm actually one of those voters, so this episode is for me as much as anyone. And I would love to hear how you feel, even if you don't have the answers either. Send an email to topofmind at byu.edu. Okay, now for this week's episode.
1: I remember going to a Cannon family reunion as a child. My mother was a Cannon. Um, They handed out T-shirts and sweatshirts at this Cannon family reunion that had a picture on there of our ancestor, George Q. Cannon. This is Christopher Jones.
0: His ancestor is something of a legend in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. George Q. Cannon was a top church official and influential politician in the 1800s, at a time when Congress outlawed polygamy.
1: There's a famous photo of him and other Latter-day Saint inmates who were imprisoned in a territorial prison for practicing polygamy.
0: This is the picture on those family reunion sweatshirts he was talking about. (laughs)
1: So this is him in his prison stripes, smiling with five or six other Latter-day Saints. And I think the sweatshirt said, Canon Pride or something like that, right? And it was a little bit (laughs) tongue-in-cheek, but also very much like this badge of pride that we were supposed to wear, that this is who our ancestors were. They had fought for what they believed in. I grew up in suburban Dallas, Texas. I was one of few Latter-day Saints in my high school. And there was a certain amount of uh, good-natured ribbing that would go on, (laughs) uh, teasing me about my faith, about my beliefs. And I sort of wore it as a badge of pride to stand up for my faith, to, to speak out about what we believed, what we didn't believe, clarifying that we were no longer polygamous in spite of my family pride in uh, George Q. Cannon's imprisonment.
0: But family stories are rarely so simple. When Christopher Jones was doing his Ph.D. in early American history, his pride in the Cannon family line
1: got complicated we'd been assigned to look at this new website that had been released not too many years previously called the Transatlantic Slave Trade Database. A memory popped into my head from my childhood of my mother telling me about one another one of our Cannon ancestors, uh, George Q. Cannon's grandfather, also named George Cannon, almost in kind of hushed tones, clearly with a little bit of embarrassment, uh, that this man, known within the family as Captain George Cannon, was a great sailor who also had captained multiple transatlantic slave trading uh, uh, voyages. So I went to search by captain name, I typed in Cannon, Common George, and uh, sure enough, up popped three transatlantic slave trading voyages that he had captained. I don't know if I uh, sort of audibly guessed, but internally, certainly so. And I was sort of embarrassed enough uh, by this realization to not be like, hey, look at this, this is my ancestor. So I just kind of kept it quiet. I mean, I had African-American uh, students in that classroom with me, right? Um, the last thing I wanted to do was out myself or my ancestors as their ancestors and slavers, right? Or the, those who were responsible for their enslavement. So it was sort of this horrifying realization, and I didn't quite know what to do with it at that point.
2: Huh, I didn't realize that. That's an
1: interesting question. You know, I've never heard of it from that So let's talk about that. Let's talk about that. I think you need to come over, stand in my shoes. Agree to disagree.
0: This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. Today on the show, we're looking at the complicated power of family history. Some of us feel compelled to research our ancestors, while others couldn't care less. But with the recent boom in DNA testing and countless television shows asking the question, who do you think you are? more and more people are digging into their roots. And what then? How do the stories of our past shape our present? How do we reconcile the imperfections of our ancestors with the stories of our family heroes? What responsibility do we have toward our ancestors' actions, good or bad? Christopher Jones was asking all those questions when he discovered the slave ship records of his ancestor on
1: slavevoyages.org. I searched by Captain, I typed in Cannon here, and it pulls up this 1798 voyage from Liverpool to Bonnie, that's a port in West Africa, to Kingston, Jamaica in 1798 that delivered 414 enslaved individuals there.
0: Captain Cannon would end up transporting more than a thousand enslaved individuals to the Caribbean from Africa during the span of about five years. As Christopher Jones kept digging into this history, he learned that Captain Cannon, his ancestor, had kept a meticulous log of his voyages. Jones has one scanned on his iPad.
1: So we start with uh, just this marbled cover page, pretty typical of a late 18th century book. He takes meticulous account of latitude and longitude daily. He talks about what's happening. I'll show you a page here, um, hour by hour. Um, In some instances, the direction they're traveling. Uh, And then some remarks here. This is his handwriting here, yes. He begins remarking on some of the enslaved individuals, although just in passing. So here he notes several slaves complaining of dangerous ILL, which is an abbreviation for illness. So Hmm. several slaves complaining of dangerous illness. The next day he writes um, the two before mentioned slaves something better so he notes he's remarking on their health and this is vitally important to him as a captain of a slave ship because he needs to keep alive and in relatively good health as many of these enslaved individuals as he can so he can maximize his and the ship owner's profits when he sells the enslaved individuals yeah
0: are the are the enslaved individuals named
1: they are not named these are chattel these are things to be purchased and sold maybe i can show you another entry here that i think highlights that a little bit. um, And it's sort of a difficult thing to read and talk about here. Um, Let's see here. So again, nine slaves complaining, uh, occasioned by the weather, uh, paid attention to keep their feet dry. And then again, how much they're keeping there. The very next page, just this single line here buried one male slave. And again, this is buried at sea. This means they took that body and they threw it overboard Mm -hmm. into the depths of the Atlantic Ocean. What I'm struck by here is the routineness or um, the lack of seeming concern for the death of this individual. It's simply another note in the logbook, sandwiched in between, notes about how much food they have left and about the weather that day.
0: So do you still feel as proud and as strengthened by your canon line, by your by your membership in this line that <laughs> that bestowed so much energy and and you know and confidence in you
1: as a child? I still find inspiration and strength in that family history. Hmm. Um, But it has been complicated and nuanced, I think, in really important ways. Um, And ultimately, I think that I can draw strength from those darker aspects of that history as well. Like what? My support for and um, interest in uh, racial justice, in combating Mm. racism in society today, I feel something of an obligation to do that, in Mm. part because of uh, my own ancestors' shortcomings on that front. Um, It, it, you know, forces me to think about who I associate with the institutions I belong to, Hmm. whether those be uh, professional or ecclesiastical or otherwise, and think about their own complicated past, about their own complicated presence, and what I can do to try and make those things better instead of just sort of blindly participating in them and furthering, uh, you know, maybe problems associated within them.
0: Are you raising your children on the stories, the canon stories, the Jones stories?
1: So my daughter was in fourth grade this year. She attends a public school here in Utah, and all fourth graders in uh, public schools in Utah um, research and write a county report on one of the counties in Utah. Hmm. And she chose, with just a little bit of influence for me, uh, Garfield (laughs) County in south-central Utah, where my grandmother, her great-grandmother, was born and raised in Penguin. Um, and uh, as part of the research that we put into this, we went well beyond I think what most fourth <laughs> graders do. And looking at the internet and maybe checking out a couple books of the library, we we spent a weekend down in Penguich and touring Garfield Canyon. We went to the local historical society. We looked at original documents. Oh, wow. We researched the kind of indigenous history of these people. We talked about her ancestors that originally uh, helped settle this place when they came west with uh, Latter-day- as Latter Day Saint pioneers in the nineteenth century. Uh, And my daughter asked a really what I thought was good and thoughtful question, and that was, what did our ancestors do or how did they interact with these Paiute peoples that were living here previously? And it kind of stopped me in my tracks a little bit, but it provided another opportunity for me to talk to her about this. And I said, I don't know about the specifics of our family line, but here's what we know about Latter-day Saints' relationships with uh, Utah's indigenous peoples when they came. And I shared examples of Uh, Some of the more harmonious interaction between those two broad groups of people uh, and some of the less harmonious, more violent interactions, right? The displacement that occurred, uh, the adoption and indenturing of some native children by Latter-day Saint families, the uh, placing of indigenous children in Latter-day Saint homes and schools, uh, all under the names of uh, Christianization and civilization, Uh, that often stripped these people of their, or attempted to strip these individuals of their uh, native identity and really uh, severed them from their uh, indigenous communities. And so we talked about those. And again, I tried to do this in an age-appropriate way, right? And she asked further questions. She said, does does that make, uh, you know, our our Latter-day Saint ancestors bad people, right, because of what they did? And I said, I don't know if it makes them bad people or not, Um, But I don't think that we need to shy away from uh, criticizing and, if need be, condemning their actions of recognizing where they were wrong.
0: Do you worry that you're robbing her of the sort of thrilling sense of belonging and strength that that a a far more simplistic, um, rosy depiction of your ancestors gave you uh, as as a kid?
1: I, I don't think so. I think it's just as important for them to understand that um, these sort of complexities, these sort of difficulties, these sort of societal struggles have always been with us and that our own family members, our own ancestors, uh, participated in various ways uh, and on various sides in those conflicts.
0: Christopher Jones is now a professor at Brigham Young University. He teaches a class on family history research and another about the history of slavery. And he enlists his students in studying those ship logs of his ancestor. In one of those classes, a student was upset to realize that she too was related to Captain George Cannon. But Jones says despite the potential for discomfort, he tells his students it's always better to know
1: your past. If we want to understand the world in which we live today, we need to understand the history of that world. If we want to understand ourselves and our families today we need to understand those family histories and so simply ignoring that uh, doesn't make it go away uh, and I'm convinced that being a historian and being a family historian and doing that work and delving into those uh, more difficult aspects of our past is uh, can make us more empathetic people in Hmm. the society, can make us more tolerant, can make us more uh, committed to justice uh, for all, can make us better husbands and wives and children and fathers and mothers, uh, can make us better friends, can make us better neighbors and can make us better colleagues. uh, And hopefully uh, can leave our children with a better legacy and a, a better world to live in as well.
0: Why, why do you think it would um, make us more empathetic and, and better all of those things rather than drive further divisions or, or along racial lines? Like, Do you see that in your classes? I mean, because you could also see kind of an us and them and like the, you know, the enslavers and the enslaved, and sort of like look yeah, at all this absolutely. ugly awfulness. Like it, you know, there is still a lot of racism and, and discrimination and strife in our modern society. How does yeah. this actually bridge rather than inflame?
1: Because nobody's ancestors were purely good or purely bad. Hmm. Nobody's ancestors were purely oppressors or purely oppressed, right? Um, in my slavery in the slave trade class, we talk obviously not only about white American enslavers and European slave traders, but also. Africans who bought and sold fellow Africans to European slave traders who actively participated in the slave trade, right? And so there's African Americans in the United States today who have enslaved ancestors and those same individuals might also have ancestors that sold other ancestors, that sold other Africans into slavery that forcefully captured them, right? Um, I have Latter-day Saint pioneer ancestors who were persecuted and driven from their homes, and those same Latter-day Saint ancestors persecuted and drove indigenous people from their homes. They did both of those things. Um, I would like to think that I'm a good person that is trying to make the world better. I'm also surely complicit in all sorts of bad things that my grandchildren, great-grandchildren will notice about me that I'm either unaware of or that I'm not committed enough to eradicating at this point in my life. None of us are purely good or purely bad, and none of our ancestors were. This is the human experience.
0: Christopher Jones is a history professor at Brigham Young University. His urge to learn about his past is both professional and personal. But what drives the desire to know where we come from for the rest of us? Evolutionary scientists suggest it may be wired in our DNA to seek our kin as a survival tactic. And there are countless stories of adopted children feeling compelled to find their biological relatives, feeling like something fundamental is missing in their understanding of themselves, which makes the next story we're about to hear all the more interesting.
3: I had a relatively idyllic childhood and you know, I was as well loved by my adoptive parents as I believe they could have loved any natural child of their own. And I just felt no need to go look any further than that.
0: And then at the age of 69, Edward deganji changed his mind. And finding his biological roots gave him meaning he didn't even know he was missing. I'm Julie Rose, this is Top of Mind.
3: I'm Edward Daganji. I live in Hillsborough, North Carolina. I'm 74 years old. And back in 2017, as I approached my 69th birthday, I began a search for the woman who had placed me for adoption at the time of my birth.
0: So Daganji was not one of those adopted children who hungered to know his biological parents.
3: The interesting thing is that I have no recollection whatsoever of my adoptive parents ever telling me I was adopted. Sometime, probably before my 10th birthday, I was going through a fireproof box that that my adoptive parents kept all their important documents in and they were out for the day. And I think some kids decide they're gonna go through the liquor cabinet. (laughs) I decided I would go through the metal box. (laughs) and there was a folder in it and I pulled out an envelope that had my mother's name on it and when I pulled the documents out one was a a birth certificate from New York City that read certificate of birth by adoption it listed the child as baby Norowski and then the second document I pulled out was the adoption decree that that placed me in the, in the arms of my adoptive parents. And that decree had my parents' signatures on it, the name of their attorney and the signature of a woman whose name I did not recognize, Genevieve Narowski. Mm. And that woman turned out to be my birth mother.
0: It would be 60 years before he would think about that name again.
3: I never brought it up with my parents. I I took the approach, I believe, that if my parents weren't, weren't talking about it, then this is something I wasn't supposed to talk about either.
4: Plus, he says he
0: had a good life as the only child of adoptive parents who couldn't have kids and wanted him desperately. He even felt deeply connected to their ancestry.
3: You know, my my adoptive father was of Sicilian heritage mm. my adoptive mother Ukrainian and the Sicilians were were loud and raucous and loving and you know and I enjoyed being with them the Ukrainians were were kind of the opposite they were reserved and a mm. little cooler but but something in me made me identify more with them than I did with the Italians and I think perhaps maybe it was I was a quieter, more reserved person.
0: He was especially close to his Ukrainian grandmother, who spoke very little English, but had a big garden at her home in Long Island. In fact, it was that grandmother who would ultimately lead him to finding his biological family. Here's what happened. When Deganji was almost 69, he went to a funeral for his wife's father, which took place near the cemetery where his Ukrainian grandparents were buried.
3: So while we were there, we took the opportunity to go and visit this other cemetery. As I stood over that grave, my first thought was, let me go and pursue the story of these, the family that adopted me.
0: So this was the first time that doing family history research had ever crossed his mind. But now was a great time to start, partly because he was retired and had some time on his hands. Strange as it sounds though, it did not occur to Daganji to look for his biological roots. His only interest was digging into the history of those adopted Ukrainian relatives he'd felt so connected to.
3: But when I realized how quickly information surfaced, something clicked in my head and I said, if it's that easy, let me go back and get that piece of paper with my birth mother's name on it and see what I can find there. And that's that's where the the journey truly began. So I I went to our local library, and I I got on Ancestry.com. I typed in the name, and I sat there for some time with my finger over the Enter button, just kind of wondering, okay, what will this open up? What will I find, if anything? And I finally pressed that button, and I felt I was looking into a family's bedroom window because so much information just started to roll out to me.
0: The first thing he clicked on was an immigration visa for his birth mother, Genevieve Norowski, to visit Rio de Janeiro about nine months after she gave birth to Edward. Now, this was not the teenaged pregnancy he had always assumed was his birth story.
3: By the birth date listed on it, she was not the high school girl I she was. she was. She was 23 years old when I was born. So that kind of upset the the narrative that I had formed in my own mind. And the other piece was it listed her profession as an artista. But what was the the real meaningful piece was my mother's picture was attached to it.
0: That was the first time you'd seen her face?
3: It was the first time I saw her face.
0: Did you spend a lot of time looking at that picture?
3: Well, yeah, I, I sat in the library looking at it, seeing is you know, do I see myself in her face? And I, I think it's just, it's a step into the unknown. I had spent 69 years knowing who my parents were. And I always identified my my adoptive parents as my parents, knowing who my family was, identifying their families as my family. And all of a sudden this opened a door to 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 something that was totally unknown to me. Mm. And I I pressed that button and couldn't get enough at that point.
0: Mm, really? So at that point it was like
3: Oh, I was hooked. <laughs>
0: so were you spending a lot of time doing it at that point then, trying to research your uh, story? I
3: spent a lot of time at the library.
0: Daganji discovered his mother had been a professional ice skater.
3: My mother left New York City at the age of 17 and traveled across the United States alone by train to join an ice skating troupe in Vancouver, British Columbia. By
0: the time she was 23, she made her way from the ensemble cast to marquee performer with the Ice Follies, which spent every summer in San Francisco.
3: This was a, a major production with with upwards of 70 ice skaters. And there were production numbers, typically each number centered around one or two or sometimes four performers who were the focus of that performance. And my mother was one of those performers uh, along with with a, a partner who she was recruited with. And they were what was called adagio skaters. They were very much acrobatic skaters lifts and spins and throws. I ultimately met my mother's roommate from that period in time, and she just shook her head. She said, I never knew that your mother was pregnant. I can't believe she did those things while she had you in her.
0: Deganji found evidence that his mother had a summer fling with a man in San Francisco who likely never knew she was pregnant. She hid it and left the Ice Follies to give birth secretly in New York and place him for adoption before returning to the rink. The discoveries didn't stop there. By the time Daganji began his search, both his biological parents had died. But through DNA testing, he learned he had half-siblings. He was not an only child.
3: I'm the big brother, which came quite unexpectedly to me. You know, this journey was so filled with coincidences and and positive discoveries that it was sort of the thought of this, it cannot be this simple.
0: Do you think that your life would have been better had you been raised by either one of your birth parents?
3: I could tell you that my paternal half-brother in that first day's conversation said, I don't know who your adoptive parents were, but I can tell you, you did better being raised by them than if you had been raised by my father.
0: Part of Daganji does wish he'd started this research early enough to actually meet his biological parents.
3: On my birth mother's side, I, my regret is solely that I did not have the opportunity to tell her that yeah, I was grateful for what she had done and I would like to have given her the peace of mind that you know that what she had done was a good thing and and had a positive outcome.
0: Hmm. Almost to thank her.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I would have that would have been the first words out of my mouth. What
0: difference has it made, this research that you were able to do, these answers you were able to get? Well, I
3: think it's it's brought a sense of completion where I didn't know I was incomplete, if that makes sense.
4: Mm.
3: You know, there was always that curiosity about, okay, who would give away the good kid? Yeah. And and now I know, and now I know what the circumstances were.
0: And you know how he always felt closer to his adopted mother's side of the family, the grandmother from Ukraine with the big garden? Well. Wow guess where Deganji's biological mother's family is from?
3: Those people were basically peasant farmers from Ukraine or, or southeastern Poland who came here in the 1880s and right outside of New York City established a farm. You know, that was the first th- thing that struck me. It was almost, I knew it. But those people, by and large, are unknown. When I've met my maternal first cousins... I said, what can you tell me about that side of the family? And basically, they shrugged their head and said, don't know a thing. Hmm. Don't have a clue. And it was a very large family, which has basically, basically evaporated.
0: And Daganji feels compelled to capture as many droplets as possible from that family line before it disappears completely
3: as I was in the process of this search, we were in New York and we traveled out to Long Island and found the cemetery where my great grandparents were buried. And I could tell you incontrovertibly that nobody had been there in years and years and years, and they were forgotten. And the feeling there is that, you know, I I could almost feel them kind of rise up and smile and say, thanks for coming. And it's just that, you know, as long as one person is thinking about someone, yeah, they're not gone and they're not dead and they're not forgotten.
0: This calling to preserve the history of his Ukrainian line has also taken on a spiritual dimension. His grandmother even visited him in a dream.
3: Yeah, it's very interesting. You know, I'm not a dreamer.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But Daganji had recently been speaking with some cousins about this grandmother.
3: And there was a comment made by one of my cousins at one point, that his, our grandmother was a very dour person. You know, I, I said, well, do you know why she was so dour? No, you know, she she had it good to be off that farm. And I said, didn't anything ever happen there? Not that I know about.
0: Then deganji found mention of his relatives in an old newspaper article from around the time his grandmother would have been six years old.
3: And there is this story which I found just a tiny, tiny little blip in an old newspaper it appears that, you know, the mother was doing some work in the yard and had a tub of water boiling and the infant fell into that tub oh. and, you know, and, and, and died as a result of that. And I think that that scarred her older sister who had been put in charge of watching her. And our grandmother was that six-year-old girl who had been put in charge.
0: When that grandmother came to Daganji in a dream, she was an adult. She didn't introduce herself.
3: No, there was no introduction. It was just sort of an intuitive knowing.
0: What did she say to you?
3: The piece that keeps on coming back is, yeah, he said, I'm dour. You know, if he heard what I heard and if he saw what I saw, he wouldn't have said that. And yes, yeah, so my feeling is there was a reason for her dourness.
0: And and you were her confidant in that moment. She was yes, sort of yeah. thanking you for taking the time to think more deeply about it.
3: Nobody knows this, but you understand.
0: Edward deganji has a book about his family history research. It's called The Best Gift Given. I'm Julie Rose. This is Top of Mind you've maybe heard that genealogy is one of the most popular hobbies in America. Well, there is no real evidence to back that up, but I bet there is someone in your family right now who is crazy about it, if it's not you. I am not the genealogy nut in my family, I admit, that is my mother, but I have spit
2: in one of those DNA test tubes. Almost a quarter of Americans have. There's more and more of us completely obsessed with genealogy right now in America, more than at any other time, I think. Why is that? Let's find out.
0: Several years ago, Libby Copeland wrote an article for the Washington Post about families uncovering surprises, often really upsetting ones, through DNA ancestry testing. And then so many readers reached out with their own stories that Copeland decided to write a whole book. It's called The Lost Family.
2: You know, I think a lot of folks are trying to define who they are and sort of where they are on this earth and in this place and time, right? And a lot of us, particularly in America, um, feel some sense of displacement. If you grow up in a particular, you know, European country in a fairly, say, homogeneous region where your people go back many generations, you're not just... Like necessarily so curious about who you are and where you come from because you come from there, right? (laughs) Like you might be really Hmm. quite steeped in in your community and the history of your community. Whereas you look at modern America and how sort of much we travel around and how apart we are from our roots, right? Um, Not just roots on the other side of the ocean in terms of your ancestors, but also maybe you grew up in a small town in Ohio and then you moved to L.A. So part of this is this this sort of American story, right? The fact that most of us who live in the United States come from someplace else. And many of us, are people came over at points in time when the name of the game in the United States was assimilation. Shedding a lot of the old country ways, foods, um, you know, the accents, right? <laughs> the um, the stories, maybe even the religion, uh, eventually over time. And a lot of Americans don't actually know where they come from. That was one of the things that surprised me was how many Americans don't know, say, where their grandparents or great-grandparents came from, emigrated from, which is kind of amazing.
0: While it's popular to research and talk about your ancestors right now,
2: Copeland says that was not always the case in America. In the early days of you know, the the, the new republic, Um, there was very much an anti-genealogical impulse because it was associated with Europe and it was associated with, you know, this kind of obsession with aristocracy. So what you're saying is that the only people who would be obsessed with their
0: genealogy were people who were doing it because they wanted to claim some sort of higher social rank, like I am, you know, descended from the Earl of whatever and therefore I am important in this society. And so that felt... Right.
2: That felt icky, I guess, to a lot of Americans. Yeah, Totally. And if they couldn't prove it, they made it up. Mm. (laughs) Right. That was a lot of making up your family crest. And then sort of over time, there was more of an interest in it. Right. Um, And there were times in history when it was kind of seen as, you know, um, laudatory to come from sort of humble ancestors. But then there were times, particularly when um, there was, you know, great obsession with the idea of, like, superior and inferior races, ethnicities, and stocks in the United States Mm -hmm. that you, you know, that you wanted to come from, you know, the better class, the better race. So, Copeland says Americans have always been picking and
0: choosing from our family trees what to emphasize, what to downplay. Although lately, she's seen more and more people opting to simply add a new branch to the family tree
2: when they learn they're not who they thought they were. Identity is not binary. It's not nature or nurture. It's Mm -hmm. not biology or experience. It's both. It's yes and. And if you make a discovery through DNA test, for instance, that your your dad is not genetically related to you, you know, you may still call him dad. He may still be dad. But then there's this other man for whom you may not have a term who contributed half your biological material. And you may want to know about him. And that's not necessarily a reflection of your lack of love for your dad. It's just that yes to both. You know, you want to know about both. And often, people
0: have told Copeland they are glad to know the dark stuff, even if it's painful.
2: There's a man that I write about in The Lost Family called um, Rosario. That was his name when I met him. He's since changed his name. Um, But he um, believed that he was Sicilian. This was what his mother told him um, that he and his brother were when they were growing up. She told them that in part um, because she wanted to explain um, they had this very you know, thick, dark hair, very curly, and it was her way of sort of explaining that. And as Rosario grew up, he was very identified with his Italian um, ethnicity. He even changed his name to Rosario. Um, so he took on an Italian name. He learned to sing opera. He joined the Catholic church. He married an Italian-American woman. He proposed to her in Italy, right? Like he mm-hmm. he was fully Italian. But, in fact, he did not have anyone in his family that, you know, that could um, support this story because the story wasn't true. You know, the story was a fiction that his mother had given him, like a kind fiction, because she was trying to protect him. And protect him from what? Protect him from the truth, which was that she was biracial. And um, her father was Black, her mother was white. Um, Their relationship had been really criminalized in this small um rural white community in um vermont in the middle of the 20th century and she had been subjected to a lot of sort of racial um slurs as she was growing up so she was sort of pale enough that she could pass as white and when she married she decided she wasn't going to tell her children about this right she was going to shield them from it so this was where the sicilian story came in um Rosario is in his, I want to say, late 40s, early 50s, when he starts figuring this out because he starts getting into genealogy and also DNA testing. And it changes his identity profoundly, profoundly, right? And he wrestles with it. Could he call himself a Black man when he didn't have the lived experience of a Black man? He started doing outreach to his Black family members and becoming close with his relatives on his mother's side, right, and getting to know them. And it totally changed the direction of his life. You know, he's, he's like, incredibly interested in the history of America. He's become a historian, you know, involved in projects that have to do with history and race in America. So he's completely, completely changed his life because of his understanding of the past. It is a bittersweet thing, right, because sometimes, in history, there's um, there's incredible cruelties that we discover when we do genealogy. There's incredible sacrifices that people made. And yet, it's also a gift, right? It's also this incredible gift to be able to reclaim it. And that's where he's come to now, is this place of being able to say, yes, um, the past, you know, history, the kind of cruelties of history did this to my family. You know, they, they broke up my family. Um, they denied me this identity and these relationships with my relatives for a long time. But now because of genealogy and DNA and the internet and other technologies, I get to I get to take that back. And so that's a kind of an amazing thing, an amazing gift. That's
0: journalist Libby Copeland, author of The Lost Family. How DNA testing is upending who we are. Rosario's story reflects an aspect of family history research that is unfortunately common for African Americans. Trauma is often embedded in ancestral discoveries. And there are practical barriers to getting beyond several generations on the family tree. It's sometimes called the brick wall. Here's genealogist L. Brady.
4: I live in New Orleans and my family has lived in Louisiana uh, around, around 300 years that I know of. For the most part, I come from um, formerly enslaved people. So, what happens um, because of the way that the census was taken back then, enslaved people, depending on a plantation, you are not going to find a first and a last name. Um, it wasn't until 1870 that African Americans started to be, you know, documented first and last name, male and female in age. When you get to the 1870 census, a lot of people consider that as the you know, like the brick wall census. So one of the things that African-Americans have to do to um, tackle the brick wall of, you know, genealogy is we have to not only research our family history, but research the history of those who we may assume is, uh, was the last um, enslaver. And so in me doing that, the particular uh, part of Louisiana where my family was from, I actually found a, a will um, of the family. Seeing um, your your great your your fourth and fifth great grandmother's names on a will document with a dollar sign next to them, um, I cried. I really did. You're excited to see their names on that list because you found them and you have that piece of them again. But you're also like extremely sad, also sometimes sick into the stomach to see a dollar sign attached to a human being.
0: When did you first personally start researching your family history?
4: Um, Unofficially, I started like very young. I was always that grandchild that always asked a lot of questions um you know stuff like hey grandma was your grandmother a slave you know just stuff like that
0: she says the year 2005 was a turning point
4: my sister died in hurricane katrina um so experiencing um you know that loss and then watching my community um feel pain every time we can't recover a photo um that was badly damaged in a storm or just the amount of information that we lost in losing so many relatives in the storm, it made me realize that, hey, it's so important to start to preserve and share our stories. And then so in 2007, two years after Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans, um, I gave birth to a son. And at that moment, I realized that, hey, you know, studying family history isn't just important for me but it's more important for my children, especially um, a son who will carry my husband's name down. So um, I just started that journey.
0: Gaynelle Brady's research has led her to develop a deep connection with a number of women in her family tree, some who were enslaved. She started a company called Our Mammies to share their stories. Often she'll dress up as one of her ancestors and give presentations to schools and community groups. She also coaches other people in their family history research, Sometimes pushing through the brick wall has required visiting the former plantations where her ancestors were enslaved, returning to the scene of violent events.
4: I feel pain when I see um, death certificates for family members who I know experienced some typo um, that that was caused by racism, and then I, I kind of learned that with you know studying African American history and genealogy, some things people do know, but they're just too painful to discuss. And so um, just understanding like some of the events that happened in the family, like um, eventually my dad told me a story about how he went back to the plantation at a very young age and he was almost forced to go and work pretty much as a sharecropper. And my dad was born in 47. And my paternal side didn't actually leave that plantation until my grandmother was pregnant with my dad. And it's so weird on that particular line as well because the plantation was owned by a free person of color. So my family was enslaved by relatives. It's kind of weird to explain it like my fourth grade grandfather was my enslaver, but also my relative. Because of all of the um intermixing in the area. Um, so that one is a difficult pill to swallow. Like to see the overseer, the overseer on a plantation, like, wow, you're my cousin. And in fact, all the way to the 1870s, you see them living next door to each other. I, you know, I just tell myself, hey gee, you're about to open Pandora's box. Um, but it's okay because even though I'm opening Pandora Box, I am gaining so much of strength from these stories. A couple of years back uh, when I was a park ranger uh, down at John Lafitte, uh, I lost hearing on my left ear. And oh my God, I was I was hurt. I cried. I cried for days. I experienced like really deep depression. I didn't want to do genealogy. I didn't want to go to a Disney store. I didn't want to do anything. And when I didn't do the two, I didn't go to a Disney <laughs> store and I didn't want to do genealogy. My husband knew there was a problem. <laughs> so he did something. I don't, I, you know, I don't know how he knew to do it. He um, put me in a car and he drove me to St. Francisville, Louisiana. And that's where my paternal ancestors uh, were enslaved. And when I stepped out of the car... I put one foot on the ground, I felt this strong wind, and I heard this voice, it was a very calm voice, and it said, you are going to be okay. And I heard that voice in my left ear, which is my, um, the ear that I lost to hearing, I heard the voice in that ear. And I never, um, I couldn't explain it, but it was like what I needed to hear at that time. I hopped right back in the car. I didn't put two feet on the ground, I only put one. And when I heard that voice, I got back in the car, I looked at my husband and said, I'm okay. (laughs) And I was perfectly fine thereafter. What was that voice? Whose was it, do you think? I believe it was my grandma, Lizzie. Uh, She's my third great grandmother and she was a midwife in St. Francisville.
0: Brady says she has heard the voices of the women in her family tree a number of times. And she often gives voice to them when she dresses up and portrays them in community presentations. Mama Belle is one of her favorites.
4: Anyone who knows me knows how much I love my Mama Belle. And Mama Belle is my second great-grandmother. Her photo was like the one photo that you could find in everyone's household. She would be like our queen, right? And when I started looking into her life and understanding that she got married very young, you know, 14, 15 years old, and the fact that she was so young, she raised her sisters, she raised her kids, she raised her grandkids, and even her great-grandkids. Born in 1888, sharecropping, um, supporting her husband when he got injured in a sawmill, and then coming uptown to New Orleans and working as a domestic servant and a baker, maintaining the family and working and being just a pillar in the community, it just let me knew like, whoa, that's the level I want to be at. I want to be at Mama Belle's level. Um, I did a presentation on her at the Historical Society and this guy told me that he knew of my Mama Belle and that his grandmother, um, often talked about her. Hmm. And he was a white guy. And he uh, said, I believe I have a photo of your Mama Belle. And he did.
0: And why would his family, why would a white family have been talking about her and had a photo of her?
4: Because Mama Belle worked for his family. Hmm. And to know that she meant that to them, but she meant way more than that to us.
0: Mama Belle also highlights for Brady the way that every inspiring story in her family history is threaded with a vein of trauma too. While Mama Belle was a valued member of her community, just a few generations back, her family's value was assigned dollars and cents. Remember that plantation owner's will that Brady found? Well, the name listed there with a dollar amount next to it was Mama Belle's grandmother.
4: It's the one thing that anyone um, research in African-American history, you have to go back to where your ancestors were enslaved. And I know it's painful, but it's powerful because the fact that you are here shows how strong they were. And for me, it just reinvigorated me. It assured me that I was taking the right path and that, you know, now more than ever, um, it's time to study genealogy so that way we can begin to heal our society and heal ourselves.
0: What is the healing that you're envisioning and how, how does that work through genealogy research?
4: Um, you know, it's kind of like uh, we were talking about earlier with the guy finding out like, hey, you know, his ancestor was a was captain of a ship, right? Like mm-hmm. a lot of people, it's painful, right? Like, and a lot of people just feel like the, the shame of their ancestors, start that healing process, share it, make it public, make your grounds accessible. I run into that a lot too, where a lot of the cemeteries are on um, plantations and some people are having a difficult time accessing those cemeteries. Mm. One of the ways you can start that healing process is by making it accessible, sharing the information, sharing the knowledge, sharing whatever you have, photographs, um, any of that stories, anything that you know, just share it, even if you don't want to do it in a very public way. Because you feel that shame, donate it to a university and and work with historical organizations. And when people talk to you about the pains that, you know, their families feel, acknowledge that and and begin a dialogue so that people can begin to heal and begin to understand and um, have a mutual understanding of what it looks like for me to see my relative's name on a wheel and what it feels like for you to see your ancestor's name as the person who sold them. So I think we need more of those facilitated circles to begin that healing process.
0: Gaynell Brady is founder of Our Mammies, which helps African-Americans do their family history and share those stories. There's a group of researchers at Emory University who talk about this thing called a family narrative. The idea is that you can have three types, one that's all about the good times, one that's all about the bad, and one that says your family's been through good and bad times. And these researchers have found that last one, with the good and the bad, is actually the healthiest for a family. It results in the most resilient kids because it teaches the power of bouncing back, If they're only happy stories in your family narrative, well, you better not be the one to mess it up. And if the narrative is all bad, there's no getting out of it. Why even try? So doing family history research can build resilience and empathy in individuals, in families, and according to author Libby Copeland, whole societies.
2: I do think that knowing that you're connected to a specific person from the past makes the past real to you. Right, you've got you know this this such and such person that was my great 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 uncle died in the Spanish flu, for instance, right? Um, but there were millions of other people who died in the Spanish flu. Until I make the discovery that this family member died, that pandemic might not seem real to me. Um, what? picking out an individual from the past and particularly from our own line does is it makes us able to relate to people who otherwise might seem really weird and not like us. It's hard to relate to people in the past until you put them in your own family. And then it's like, all of a sudden, aha, you can see the straight line from them and you can see sort of the continuity of humanity through time. Mm.
0: So it can be actually a tool for promoting empathy
2: empathy through history and empathy across human communities, both, right? Because when you say recognize that you come from a certain part of the world that you didn't even know you had a connection to, all of a sudden you're thinking about the people who live there and maybe they're going through a war or a famine and you're feeling connected to them in a way that you didn't before.
0: I was thinking about the example of if, you know, if you know that you have an ancestor who died in the Spanish flu, there is a, pe- a global virus pandemic going on in the world, and that could certainly make you think differently, maybe even make you behave differently in the face of this current threat.
2: Yes, it, 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 is a, it is a lesson in endurance and perseverance. It is a means of looking at the past and saying, I have been through this before. I am connected to those people. I can do it again.
0: Top of Mind is a production of BYU Radio. Today's episode was produced by Elizabeth Miller, Ciara Hewlett, and Cole Cummings, with help from me. We had music and sound design by Jacob Molasky, Christian Mocatel, and the post-production team at BYU Broadcasting. And if you haven't already, would you take a moment to leave a rating or give us a review on the podcast app where you listen to Top of Mind? That'll help other people find us and feel the power of thinking again. I'm Julie Rose. We'll talk soon.